Dear God, your will, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. Amen. That's a prayer that I stole unashamedly from a guy named Bobby Richardson. How many of you guys know Bobby Richardson? There's an old Yankees fan right over there. Bobby Richardson was a second baseman for the New York Yankees back in the 60s. I've got a ball autographed by him up in my office. And um, he was a great second baseman. He was actually the only guy who's been the MVP of a World Series uh, in which he played for the losing team. When the Yankees got beat by the Pirates in a heartbreaker in the seventh game, Bobby Richardson was the MVP of the series, even though he played for the losing team. But more importantly about Bobby Richardson was the way he lived his life in the midst of the craziness that was the New York Yankees in the 60s. Um, he was a guy that was serious about his walk with Christ, and he lived it out on the baseball field and off the baseball field. And so, you know, when we talk about Leviticus, we've got to have the word holiness immediately come to our minds. And, you know, the idea, uh, we're going to talk tonight about the priests being consecrated to God. And uh, I can't think of any better way to illustrate that than Bobby's prayer. Your will, Lord... Nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. And so that's how we're going to uh, dive into the uh, book of Leviticus. Um, Again, my name is Bobby Crotty. I serve as the uh, men's equipping director here at Watermark. And uh, it's a joy to have a chance to um, talk about spiritual things, to study the Word during the course of the summer. It seems like that uh, um, things... um, in some places, shut down during the summer. And uh, I'm excited that we're going to take these four weeks, the next four Thursday nights, and talk about uh, something that really is the ultimate Sticky Pages book. The, the name Sticky Pages came from uh, the idea that, you know, those portions of your Bible where the, the, the gold edge still kind of sticks together because you hadn't been hanging out there very much. Uh, I've heard one person say that, you know, Leviticus uh, is the rocks upon which many a good intention to read through the Bible have foundered. Okay, anybody had that experience? You know, you're reading along and, you know, Genesis is pretty cool and then you hit Exodus and, man, there's some exciting things going on in Exodus. You know, those ten plagues, uh, you just don't see that much except in Hollywood. Uh, But the original special effects came from uh, our Lord uh, in those plagues and as... You read through, then all of a sudden, you hit this rules and regulations and things that you just go, huh, what's up with this? And why should this matter to me today? Okay, so I'm a believer in Christ, and, you know, I know some of my Bible, and the Bible says that Christ came and fulfilled the law, and therefore, you know, he's the end of uh, the law for righteousness. And uh, we operate on a different, different basis in this day and age. And that's one of the things we'll talk about tonight. Uh, we'll have a chance to look at what is the way of salvation in the Old Testament? How do we establish a relationship with God in the Old Testament? How do we maintain a, a relationship with God in the Old Testament? And then we'll look at the same thing with respect to the New Testament as well. You know, if we were... Uh, really good, we would uh, take credit for the fact that the journey, how many of y'all read the journey? 
Oh, a bunch. Well, thanks for doing that. But did you notice today the journey just happened to be on to start uh, the book of Leviticus, Leviticus 1 and 2 we did today. Um, and so um, if any of you are not on the journey, I would encourage you uh, to grab one of these reading plans on the way out uh, because uh, reading along on the journey, particularly as we study Leviticus, will be a great help to you. I don't know if you uh, remember the journey from this morning, but it's written by my buddy Benson Hines, and it's worth going and reading. You can do it at uh, uh, jointhejourney.com. And let me uh, share with you a couple of things that Benson wrote. He's talking about, uh, you know, uh, how it's not completely clear about why God wanted salt added to uh, an offering but not honey. And he says, but those very specific instructions reminded me that God chooses what constitutes a pleasing offering, not me. Even though we don't worship with grain offerings today, God still gets to define righteous living, whether I fully understand or not. And so if you, feel, if you start feeling bogged down reading the rules, repetitious topics, and difficult passages of Leviticus, remember the overall theme it is communicating. This conglomeration of legalities makes one big point, and that is that God is holy. And he calls his people who follow him to live holy lives because they are living, literally, the people of Israel were living in the presence of a holy God. So, great way to supplement what you're doing with uh, uh, coming to these classes. And so I would highly recommend that you read along on the journey as we um, work through the book of Leviticus. So I hope everyone grabbed one of these sheets as you came in. These are uh, my PowerPoint slides, and so it gives you a little place to uh, take notes, and um, it'll help you as you follow along. And let's start by uh, um, going to the uh, overview. And I've got the clicker, so I guess I'm in control of the slides. All right, here we go. So week one, we're going to do a little overview of the whole book, and then we're going to jump in and look at Leviticus 8 through 10. You're going, okay, now why are we doing that? Well, Hopefully it'll be clear by the time we finish tonight why we did that. In the second week, we're going to look at uh, uh, Leviticus 1 through 7. We're going to drop back to the beginning, and we'll look at the sacrifices and offerings. Then in week 3, we'll deal with the regulations, and we're going to have a special treat in week 3. Um, Andrew Sumney is sitting right down here with his three boys, or two, uh, two boys and one girl, um, three kids, and so Andrew um, not only has um, studied in uh, uh, both a bachelor level and also a master's level uh, Jewish Christian studies, but he's also actually lived in Israel uh, for a year. And so in weeks three and four, Andrew's going to come up here, and uh, one, you'll have a chance to ask someone who actually has participated in the feast days and things like that. And so save your questions, particularly your hard ones. If you've got some easy ones, I'll handle those in weeks one and two. But if you have hard questions, save them from Andrew. And so the last half of both the third and fourth weeks, he's going to be up here with me, and we're going to be walking through the rules and regulations in week three, and then the feast days and the festivals that he's actually participated in in Israel. So that's going to be real fun. We're going to have a chance to uh, uh, really dive in on someone who's been on the ground uh, living life in Israel for a year. 
He also did something that was pretty interesting. At another church up in Boston, he lived for 30 days as much as he could in accordance with the teachings of the book of Leviticus. Now, I don't think he sacrificed any goats or anything, uh, but uh, his church, as they were studying through the book of Leviticus, uh, tried to live out the things that uh, the book calls us to. Is that a fair summary of what you did? So for 30 days, they did this. And uh, he'll have some uh, great stories and, even more importantly, some great takeaways of what he got from living out um, the book of Leviticus for 30 days. It's a great book. Um, tell them the name of it. Living Perfectly. All right, even better, How to Be Perfect. So if you've ever wondered how to be perfect, uh, here's a book that uh, one church did where they tried as a church to live it out. And you're going to hear Andrew talk about some of the things that uh, really um, um, bubbled to the surface, uh, things that uh, he came and, and went through Regen to uh, help work through. Okay, so living in community, living uh, holy lives in the presence of a holy God uh, causes us to work on things that uh, are going on in our life. And, you know, that's one of the ideas behind uh, Regen right here at Watermark. Okay, so that's going to be coming up in weeks three and four. How many of you were here on Sunday and heard Tommy Nelson do Daniel? Pretty much everybody. Um, What a treat that was. Um, Well, I'm no Tommy uh, Nelson. I'm no Todd Wagner. uh, But Nelson, I thought, had a great idea. He kind of did the book of Daniel in 12 words, you know, words that really captured the heart of the book of Daniel. And so I've got four words that to me capture uh, a lot of what Leviticus is about. So let's go through those. First, first word is holiness. Um, I don't have a slide for this, so y'all... Um, write these words down. Holiness. And we'll be talking a lot about holiness. Here's what John Brown, a 19th century Scottish theologian, said about holiness. He said, Holiness does not consist in mystic speculations, enthusiastic fervors, or uncommanded austerities. It consists in thinking as God thinks and willing as God wills. And so the central theme of the book of Leviticus is holiness, and we'll talk about that in just a second. Um, Worship. The idea behind um, Leviticus is how were these people to connect with a holy God, okay? They had already established a relationship with this God uh, as they uh, went through the plagues, and even before, um, while they were still in Egypt. But then as they came out of Egypt, and they went to Mount Sinai, and they uh, received the law, they had a chance to uh, um, listen as God described for Moses how his people were to live in the presence of a holy God. Okay? And so, you know, gang, we still do that today. And in fact, we are, if you've put your trust in Christ, you're indwelled by his Holy Spirit. And so, His Holy Spirit is fully God, and so you as a believer in Christ are living 
in accordance with living in the presence of the Holy God. And so the book of Leviticus that instructs us how to do that uh, will have a lot of lessons for us. So holiness, worship, how are we to worship this holy God? And then two R's to end up with. I think the book of Leviticus is a great reminder of who we are as believers in Christ, who we are in Christ. And then the second R is how we are to respond. What is our response to this holy God? Okay? You know, too often I want to make God my pal. And I want him to be there for me. And when I need a parking place, I want him to get me a parking place. And when I, um, you know, when I need things, I want him to be there. But God is not my pal. He is the holy God of the universe. Now, he loves me in a way um, that is much more perfect than any of my pals here on earth do. But he is a holy God, and we as a people have to learn what it is to live in his presence. That's what the book is all about. Okay. Next slide, we... uh, um, uh, Author is Moses. It's part of the Pentateuch, the first five books. Um, the Jewish folks call it the Law. Um, I believe it was finished before Moses died in approximately 1405 BC. Uh, that ought to be, not AD. Uh, the theme is holiness. We've talked about that. And the purpose to show the Israelites how to live in the presence of the Holy God. You know, there are a lot of different ways you can outline this book. Uh, the one I picked was uh, uh, sacrifice and sanctification. Okay, sacrifice in that it gives us the way to God. Not coming to God initially, that's on the basis of faith. But after we have put our trust in him, how are we to come to God on a daily basis? And I think that has lessons for us of how we are to come to God on a daily basis as Christians. And so that's chapters 1 through 17. And it uh, focuses on the laws of acceptable daily approach to God. And then the last half of the book, chapters 18 through 27, deal with sanctification, how we walk with God, laws of continued fellowship with God. Okay? So um, sacrifice, sanctification. You can think of dividing up the book in that manner. And, you know, gang, I want this to be informal. Obviously, with this big of a crew, it's hard to uh, answer every question. But if you have a burning question, um, you know, ask it, and I'll be happy to take it on. And uh, I'll also be happy to defer it in case I think it's going to take us somewhere. Either I'm going to answer later on, or it's going to take us down uh, too long of a rabbit trail. Uh, but then I'll be hanging around here afterwards, and I'm happy to take on any questions. So we want this to be informal. The summer has begun, and so um, let's make this a fun class where you get your questions answered. All right, I want to give you seven distinctives about the book of Leviticus. And to start with, uh, one of the most important is that this book has had more impact on Judaism than any other book of the Old Testament. It's the first book that Jewish parents uh, taught their uh, children. And you know... In doing that, they wanted their children to know that, hey, we are distinct 
as a people because we worship and we uh, honor in our daily lives the one true God. Um, commentary on the uh, Jewish uh, law is called uh, the Talmud. The Talmud is over 6,200 pages, and over half of the Talmud uh, is devoted to explaining uh, the um, teachings of the book of Leviticus. So for the Jewish people, the book of Leviticus is absolutely key. It's also important for us. It's quoted more than 20 times in the Old Testament and alluded to or referred to many more times. It furnishes the basis, in fact, for understanding many New Testament passages that uh, um, otherwise we would have trouble uh, understanding. Something that's unique about the book is if you want to hear the very words of God, then read the book of Leviticus. He's the direct speaker in almost every page as he gives instructions to Moses and Aaron. Um, over 38 times, uh, it says that God spoke to Moses and Aaron. So you want to hear the voice of God? Read the book of Leviticus. In fact, no other book in the Bible contains more of the very words of God than Leviticus. And finally, it shows how Israel was to fulfill its covenant responsibility to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Does that sound familiar? You know, we today, as believers in Christ, are called to be priests and a holy nation. If you look at uh, um, 1 Peter 2.9, um, it says that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we are a uh, royal priesthood, a holy nation. And the way that Israel was to uh, live their lives uh, ought to have impact on what we're about as believers in Christ. And so let's start with the, uh, uh, a definition of holiness. What is holiness? What are we called to be? Holiness, for the one who believes in God, is being separate or set apart to him and his service and carries the idea or the sense of being morally pure in what we think, say, and do. We're called to be holy in the way that we live out our lives as believers in Christ. You know, the world is watching the way God's people live their lives. It was true in the Old Testament times, and it's true today. And so the book of Leviticus will help us uh, figure out how to live that out. As uh, um, John Brown's quote indicated, it's thinking about life as God thinks about life, and it's willing as he wills. That's what holiness is about. Only God is inherently holy. And holiness is one of his foundational traits. I've cited some uh, verses up here. And so, gang, we live in the presence of this holy God. And to have fellowship with him, um, once we've put our trust in him, it's important that we live holy lives. Are you getting that the book of Leviticus is about holiness? 
it's the central message. Look at all those passages uh, in the last bullet there uh, that have this very message that God's people are to be holy as he is holy. It occurs over and over in the book. So let's take a uh, quick look uh, as we get ready to dive into the book itself at uh, um, what um, we affectionately call around here um, the six C's of Bible study. These C's, if you will make these a part of your everyday life as you study the Word, will transform the way that you study the Word. And it starts with determining the context, and that's what we're going to do tonight uh, with Leviticus. So each passage has a historical, a cultural, a literary, and a theological context. And to understand what you're reading, you need to understand that context. And each verse has a context within the passage it occurs. And each paragraph has a context within the chapter. And each chapter has a context within uh, the book itself. And the book has a context uh, within its, uh, whether it's Old Testament or New. So you've got to determine, first off, what is the context. And we're going to do that as a little exercise here together, okay? Um, second, gather the clues. This is when you put your detective hat on. And you ask the who, what, why, when, where, and how sort of questions uh, as you go through the text. And then as you do that, you want to uh, finish with a couple of questions uh, that you ask about the passage that you're reading. What is the main idea of the passage? And then what is said about the main idea of the passage? And that will help you gather the clues for each passage. Then you want to compare and contrast Scripture with Scripture because Scripture is always the best interpreter of other Scripture. Okay? Finally, uh, um, after we've done all this work on our own, that's when we're ready to consult outside sources. You don't have to do this on your own, but it's really important that you not start in step number four. You know, my tendency sometimes is, you know, I'll read a passage and I'll go, ooh, what's that about? And I'll immediately either look down at a study note or go to uh, Dr. Constable's notes or something like that. And so what I would say to you is don't do that. You've got to do your own work first and figure out what you can on your own before you ever go and consult outside sources. But there are a ton of outside sources to use. Um... This little book on Leviticus is uh, one written by a guy named Samuel Schultz who uh, taught at uh, Wheaton for a long time. It's a great little read on the book of Leviticus. It's you know, well within the uh, grasp of the average layman, and it makes some of the passages really jump when I was sitting there scratching my head. So this is something that I would uh, recommend to you if you're looking for a book to help you as you read through the book of Leviticus. But don't do this until you've done steps uh, one through three first. Once we've done all that work, then we're ready to draw our conclusions, okay? And our conclusions will help us figure out what is the universal principle that this passage is trying to teach us. And then on the basis of those conclusions, the rubber meets the road when we get to the part of committing to take action. 
And that's where lives start to be changed, is when we commit to take action. Is there an example to follow? Is there a sin to avoid? Is there a promise to claim? Is there a prayer to repeat? Is there a command to obey? Is there a challenge to face? And one of the things about our little uh, journey reading plan is that it has set out in here these six C's. And if you'll just take this and put it uh, by wherever you have your quiet time, uh, it's a great way to just embed in your uh, subconsciousness these ways to study Scripture. And then you'll find that the six C's become automatic, and you just do them without thinking about it, okay? This is a great little tool, great little resource. All right, so I've been up here talking long enough. Um, Let me do one more thing, though, before I go here. Um, The key to understanding the book, the presence of God is the key. The presence of God among his people is the key to understanding the book of Leviticus. God was present in every aspect of life, in the mundane, everyday affairs, as well as in religious concerns. God was living among them. The tabernacle was his residence in Israel. The presence of God among them was the basis for holiness and holy living. And the book of Leviticus outlines the terms under which true worship was accepted by God. God living among his people, he's a holy God, and he requires us to be holy. And so now, as we think about the context here, we want to answer these questions. And if you'll just turn around with your neighbors and uh, um, guys in the front row can turn to the uh, second row. And let's just take a few minutes and just talk in groups about answering these questions. Where are the people as the book of Leviticus starts in uh, chapter 1? Who's speaking? Who's being addressed? What sort of time period does the book cover? And I've given you a little hint for that. You've got to go look at uh, the end of Exodus and also go compare it with the first chapter of the book of Numbers. And then finally, what event immediately precedes where Leviticus starts off? So let's take uh, five or ten minutes and just do this, a little group exercise, and then we'll come back together and uh, go through those together and keep rolling. All right, gang, how we doing? Everybody got the answers? Anybody need any more time? All right, let's keep rolling. All right, so we're starting just looking at Leviticus 1. Um, So where are the people? Anybody answer that or figure that out from where are they? Mount Sinai, okay, right. Um, And so in Leviticus 1.1, who's speaking? God is. And uh, who's addressed? Yeah, Moses and through Moses, the people. Okay? All right, this one's a little harder. What period of time does the book of Leviticus cover? Say that again. Okay. Um, Almost. But what within that year, the first month... You, ma'am, receive a book. Oh, sorry, for answering that question correctly. And I've got a bunch more books to give away, okay? And so 
This is in a one-month, 30-day period, okay? And so we have the uh, um, dedication or the, the construction of the t- uh, tabernacle, and then we have uh, in, you see that in uh, Exodus 40, uh, verse 17, and what does that say? The uh, first day of the first month, and then uh, the second day, or the first day of the second month of the second year, in Numbers 1-1, you see uh, the people start to, or Moses start to take a census of the people. That's where we get the name Numbers. He numbers the people. Okay? And so this book covers that 30-day time span. And it really serves as the transition between the book of Exodus and the book of uh, uh, Numbers. Okay? So well done. And so I've already given away the answer there. Y'all knew that, that the event that immediately precedes the book of Leviticus is what? The building of the tabernacle. And so then we start off um, tonight. We're going to look at Leviticus 8 through 10. And the reason we're jumping to that is that's where the um, Moses consecrates Aaron and his sons to ministry in the temple so that the People can get started rolling, okay? All right, so let's take a look at the tabernacle. We have any tabernacle experts out here? I know that uh, Andrew has actually seen a tabernacle uh, um, there um, near the Jordan border in Israel. Uh, Blake Holmes was there in February, and uh, I've actually got some pictures from that. But here's how it was set up. And if you think about it, it's 150 feet long by 75 feet wide. And I haven't measured this room, but I bet this room is about that same sort of size. Maybe not quite that big. Maybe the tabernacle was a little bigger, but it wasn't huge. And uh, um, if you noticed, uh, let's just go back to it. If you noticed the first picture here, that is the picture of the recreation of the tabernacle built to the exact specifications of Scripture uh, that uh, is located where, Andrew? Okay, near the Dead Sea in the southern part of Israel. Okay? And it's, you know, right out there in the wilderness as the people would have uh, set it up as they were uh, traveling along. Okay? So the uh, elements in the tabernacle are pretty simple, okay? You've got an altar of burnt offering, and then a laver that uh, was where the priests would go wash before they went into the holy place. And then you have a a structure that's uh, 45 feet long and 15 feet wide that's divided into two areas. You have the holy place, and in that you have the table of showbread, the lampstand, and the altar of incense, and then you have a, a thick curtain, and you can read about that in Exodus. Uh, uh, the description of the curtain is uh, amazing. The veil between the holy place and the most holy place. And in the most holy place, we had the Ark of the Covenant. Okay? Any questions about that? Here's a little, I hope this helps you visualize uh, what the uh, tabernacle looked like, and these pictures will actually help you uh, probably even more. These are pictures that uh, Blake took on uh, um, his stay in Israel. And we start in the upper right, and you can see, I'm sorry, in the upper left, 
and you see the uh, um, altar of burnt offering uh, in front of uh, the uh, tent of meeting. And uh, that tent is divided again into the holy place and the most holy place. And so inside the holy place, uh, in the lower left-hand corner, you see the table of showbread, and that's some bread on it. And then in the uh, center of the bottom, you see um, uh, a lampstand, and that, I think, is Blake in priestly garb uh, right next to it. Um, and then on the uh, uh, bottom right, you see the altar of incense. Okay? And then, of course, at the top is the Ark of the Covenant. Any Indiana Jones fans in here, you know? Um, the um, very first Indiana Jones, the, the uh, what was it called, the Last Crusade? Or no, what was the first one? Raiders of the Lost Ark, of course. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, and so, um, how quickly we forget. Um, it was all about um, finding the Ark, okay? Don't think we'll ever do that, but uh, um, there is a recreation of it. Those were uh, some of the elements of the tabernacle. And then, now let's talk about the significance of those for us today. I think the Ark of the Testimony, yes, is indeed the uh, Ark of the Covenant. Uh, and it's simply a reference to one of the elements in the Ark was actually the uh, tablets of the law. Okay? Um Okay, so the altar of burnt offering uh, speaks of atonement. And what is atonement? Well, it was a temporary covering of sin that anticipates God's final and permanent dealing with sin in the death of Christ on the cross. If you look at 1 Peter uh, 2.24, it says, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds... You were healed. And we're going to talk about this in uh, uh, a little later on as we talk about Christ, who serves as our high priest today. Okay, and next to the uh, altar of burnt offering was the laver. This is where the priests went to wash before they went into the holy place. Uh, and it uh, symbolizes or it pictures regeneration, and it's a picture of new spiritual birth. Titus 3.5 says that he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And inside, in the holy place, you have the table of showbread. And, you know, that one's easy. We know Christ said, I am the bread of life. Um, John, let's see, that's in... um, John 6.35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And the, the lampstand pictures Christ as the light of the world. And uh, um, that's in John 8.12. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so um, the altar of incense was also in the holy place. And today we have Jesus offering intercession on our behalf. It's a picture of uh, prayer and intercession being offered uh, uh, to God as this sweet aroma of the incense goes up to him, a picture of our prayers going up to him today. Romans 8.34 says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. 
More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And then we move into the uh, um, most holy place. But to go between the two, uh, you had the curtain that separated them. And I'm sure you, uh, some of you will remember in Matthew, uh, Matthew 27, 51, one of the amazing things that happened uh, at, uh, upon Jesus' death is that the curtain in the temple... Remember, different from the tabernacle, but similar in function, the, the t- curtain in the temple was torn in two. And it was torn where? From top to bottom. How about that for amazing? And what did that signify? Well, that signified that uh, um, Jesus has removed the barrier that separates um, man from God. Because he is the way, and he provided the way for us to uh, have a relationship with God by taking our sins onto himself and dying on the cross for us. And finally, the ark. It's a picture of God's presence because he dwelled uh, there in the most holy place um, on the mercy seat on top of the ark of the covenant. And today, we have God dwelling with us how? Through his spirit. And where does his spirit dwell? In our bodies. First um, Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says that, um, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your bodies. And so we have the privilege of living in the presence of a holy God today because he indwells us and he fills us for service. And so we can learn things from Leviticus about how we are to live in the presence of a holy God. All right, so now we come to the point that uh, I think is really one of the most interesting uh, points of the evening. I hope it is for y'all as well. Um, Let's talk about salvation in the Old Testament and salvation in the New Testament. And uh, rather than, in the interest of time, rather than breaking into groups, we'll just do this one together. So how did people establish a relationship with God in the Old Testament? By how? By faith. Who said by faith? Well, of course you did. This is a book that, uh, Angela, is a book on Leviticus written by Samuel Schultz. Uh, I don't know if your reader can translate that. I'm a serious reader. I can scan it. All right. There we go. And so that book, um, you know, if you go read that, Angela, you're going to hear a bunch of the things I'm talking about. So uh, uh, don't give them away. But the bottom line is that uh, um, the way to faith in God in the Old Testament and in the New Testament is identical. It's by faith. And who's the best example of that? Who's the example that Paul used? Abraham, exactly. Abraham uh, believed God and it was what? It was counted to him for righteousness. Okay? So we establish the relationship, whether it's in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, by faith. And we maintain the relationship how? By obedience. 
I heard you first. <laughs> By obedience. And it doesn't matter whether it was the Old Testament being obedient to the Mosaic law, or in the New Testament, Christ, uh, we'll talk about this in just a second, but uh, he's put an end to the law. But we have another law to follow in the New Testament. What is that? The law of Christ. I've got one more book. Who said that? Sean, way to go, buddy. I've got a book for you. Um, it's the law of Christ. And we go, okay, the law of Christ, what's that? Well, uh, Galatians 6.2 says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And it's like I talked about as uh, uh, we were doing the opening, the idea is that we are called to be obedient to the commands of uh, Christ. If you love me, uh, Jesus says in John 14.15, you'll do what? You'll obey my commandments. Wagner has been awesome talking about John 14 and the impact it should have on us as believers. And the way to maintain a relationship in the Old Testament was by obedience, and in the New Testament it's by obedience as well. We are called to be obedient. To, you know, to put it in uh, modern terms, we're called to run God's offense, not our own. Okay? Um, every time I run the karate offense, someone dies. You know, usually uh, it's me. Um, but it's, it's not good. When we run the, when we live in the manner that God calls us to live, then life occurs. And you know, these rules and regulations are not to rip us off, not to uh, um, um, cause us to do crazy things, but they're to give us life. And, you know, Jesus described that life as life more abundantly by putting your faith in him. And we're told by Paul, as we receive Christ, what are we to do? We're to walk in him. So whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, we establish the relationship in the same way. Who did the Old Testament uh, uh, believers look forward to? They looked forward to the coming Messiah. And we look for we look at the Messiah who has already come and who was, who was crucified and died and was buried and has been resurrected and now sits at the right hand of the Father and who is coming back one day. And part of living holy lives is to be ready for him when he comes back. That's what the book of uh, Revelation is all about, that we are to be ready for God. He is coming back. His son will be coming back. Okay? So we establish the relationship by faith, we maintain it by obedience. And really, obedience there is, uh, in a lot of ways, just another word for faith. We're saying to God, hey, I trust you with my life, and so I will be obedient to what you tell me to do in the way I live my life. Okay, does that make sense? And so that's in essence you're saying, Lord, I trust you. And so I'm going to live by faith. And so I'm going to do the things you command me to do in your word by faith. That's the secret. Old Testament, New Testament, same way to him, same way to uh, maintain a relationship. The Old Testament guys uh, kept the Mosaic law to maintain that relationship. That law was fulfilled by Christ, and we'll talk about that in just a second. Okay, are we good on that? Any questions about that? 
Here's a great quote from Schultz about how we maintain a right relationship with God. Leviticus gives us instructions for many aspects of everyday life in which the Israelites were to reflect that they were God's holy people. They were taught to maintain, there's that word again, a right relationship with God through sacrifices and offerings. If the relationship was broken through sin, it could be restored by the proper offering. You know, God knew that his people weren't going to be perfect. Okay? And so he gave them a way to reestablish the relationship when it was broken by sin. We have that same opportunity today. How do we do that? Repentance? Confession, really, is the word that first comes to my mind. Think about uh, 1 John 1, nine. What does it say? It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and then to do what? The, the added bonus is that he will uh, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How about that? You know, so if we will do business with God on the sins that we know about, then he'll wipe out the ones that we've done that we're not even aware of. You know, which would, in my case, may be a long list. So I'm grateful for that. So we have the chance to restore a relationship through, uh, we don't have to offer a sin offering, but we do have to agree with God that what we did was uh, broke his standards. We have to be willing to say the same thing. That's what the Greek word for uh, uh, confess means, that we say the same thing about our sin that God says. Homo legao is the Greek word, and it means to say the same thing. And that gives us the opportunity to restore that relationship um, observation of the feasts and seasons incorporated into their pattern of living were a continual reminder that they were God's people. And so the feasts weren't just for celebration or weren't just to, um, you know, give them days of rest or whatnot, but they were to remind people uh, throughout the course of their year that they belonged to God and that they were to live in that sort of manner. So let's talk a little bit about Jesus in the law. And on the, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, you have probably the uh, best statement of uh, the relationship between Christ and the Mosaic law. And he said, Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He was the only one who has lived a perfect, sinless life. And in doing so, he fulfilled the law. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And he did that. And then Romans 10.14 says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. We're no longer under the Mosaic law. But we are under the law of Christ, and we are called to obey his commandments uh, as he's given us. Even in the Great Commission, if you think about that, we're told to do what? We're told to go, but really the main verb of uh, the Great Commandment is to make disciples. That's what this church is about. We want to be and make disciples of Christ. And then in doing that, we will go and we'll baptize and we'll also teach. And what will we teach? Teach them all that I have commanded you. And so there again, we're told to share with each other the things that Christ has commanded us to do. 
And then finally, Galatians 6.2, I've uh, uh, cited this one a couple of times, that we're to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And so this isn't an onerous law. This is a law that's intended to set us free and to live the life that God has designed for us. It's not one to rip us off, but it's one to let us be the people that he designed us to be by being obedient uh, to what Christ calls us to do. All right, so let's dig into, we've got about 30 minutes left. I want to spend the rest of our time talking about uh, Leviticus 8 through 10. So if you have your Bible, uh, um, open up to uh, Leviticus 8, and we'll get rolling through there. And so just as an overview, um, we've talked through this a little bit, but just to make sure that we're clear on it, it, Leviticus 8 through 10 really picks up where Exodus 40 stops. And it provides a historical link between Exodus and Numbers. Um, One scholar described the inauguration of the priesthood as the, the temple was dedicated as the climax of Israel's encampment at Mount Sinai. And so what happens during the week that the tabernacle is uh, dedicated is explained in Exodus 40 and then continued in Leviticus 8 and 9. And so uh, the accounts are complementary, and each would be incomplete without the other. And as we start with uh, Leviticus 8, we're talking about the consecration to ministry and how Aaron and his sons and uh, the priests were set aside for ministry. The purpose of the priesthood was that they were to represent God before the people and the people before God in order to maintain the covenant relationship between God and Israel. And as priests today, what is our purpose? Well, we're described not only as priests, but we're also described as what? Ambassadors. In uh, 2 Corinthians 5, where uh, it describes us as ambassadors, that we represent the king uh, to a watching world. And so how we live makes an impact on the way that uh, the world perceives our God. Uh, Peter talks about this a lot, where he says, let your um, conduct be excellent in front of uh, the Gentiles so that they will give glory to God. They'll see your good works and give glory to God. And so as we look through uh, uh, Leviticus 8, uh, I broke it up into two sections. In uh, verses 1 through 13, Moses prepares and anoints Aaron and his sons and the tabernacle. And then in verses 14 through 36, uh, Moses offers sacrifices and consecrates Aaron and his sons. And let's take a little bit of, of a look at that. As you look through it, you see that uh, um, Aaron uh, washes before he puts on his priestly garments. And this is a picture of the outward need for clean hands and clean feet that reveal an inner need for what? For a clean heart. You said clean heart. Thanks. Um, A clean heart. You know, the heart is always the issue. 
In the Old Testament times, in Christianity, the heart is always the issue. You know, that's the whole message of, uh, or that's one of the messages of the Sermon on the Mount. The heart is the issue. What is our motivation? God is looking at the heart. He judges the heart. And so uh, the picture of washing is, is the hands and feet, but it's revealing that there's truly a need for the right motivation, the right heart attitude. And how about this? The high priest's headdress had a plate of pure gold that was inscribed, Holiness to the Lord, and served as a constant reminder, not only to the priest himself, the high priest, but also to the people that God's essence, the essence of his nature, is holiness. And then as um, Moses offers a sin offering and a burnt offering, he offers the sin offering first, then he offers a burnt offering, and finally an ordination offering for all, um, for uh, Aaron and his sons. And he takes the blood and he applies it to the right earlobe and the right thumbs and the right toes of Aaron and his sons. And this is a picture of the priest total being set apart for God's service. Total set apart, total consecration uh, to God to serve as his representative and to keep his commandments in front of the people. And how about this ceremony? It was not just done once, but it was done seven days in a row. You know, um, sometimes, you know, we'll hear uh, Wagner repeat things, and we'll go, okay, we got that, we got that. But God is in the business of repeating his messages. And so for the people of Israel, this stiff-necked people, he repeats it daily for seven days. The key phrase in uh, chapter 8, is as the Lord commanded. You see that at least six times in there. Um, verses 4, 9, 13, 17, 21, and 29. As the Lord commanded. And, you know, as the Lord commands, that is our call to obedience. He commands things for us to do today. You know, Scott, um, as he was up here talking, uh, mentioned uh, the four Friday nights in uh, May where went. Uh, the class went through the one another's of Scripture. And that is what we are to be about. We are to be about living out the one another's of Scripture throughout uh, our daily lives. So as the Lord commanded. That's Leviticus 8. In Leviticus 9, we have the beginning of ministry. And there we see Aaron assisted by his sons. Um, They uh, begin his service as high priest and their service as well. And I divided that up into uh, Moses' instructions um, to Aaron, his brother. You can just see the big brother going, hey, okay, let me just give you a couple of final words of advice here. And then in verses 8 through 21, you see Aaron's service. In verses 22 through 24, you see the Lord's acceptance. As Aaron begins... uh, he offers uh, for the priests uh, a calf for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, and we'll talk about those next week. Um, he then offers uh, uh, some sacrifices for the people, a male goat for a sin offering and a calf and a lamb for a burnt offering and an ox and a ram for a peace offering and then a grain offering mixed with oil. And you know what's amazing about that? 
When was the last time we saw a calf mentioned in connection with uh, Aaron? The golden calf, exactly. You know, he threw this gold in the fire and out jumped this calf. It was, you know, that's uh, what he said to Moses. You know, who knows how that calf got out of there. Um, But I'm sure it was not lost on Aaron that as he sacrificed this calf, the last time he had dealt with a calf. And so, you know, gang, if there's one lesson that we can take from the fact that Aaron was the high priest, it is that God is not done with you as long as you're still drawing breath. Here was a guy who uh, led the people in idolatry, and you know, it may not have been totally his fault, but it certainly happened on his watch, and his explanation to Moses wasn't a very good one. Um, and yet, here he is just a short time later being um, consecrated as the high priest of all of Israel. Is that amazing? God is in the business of transforming lives. He uses broken and fallen people to do his work. And man, that is a consistent message of the scriptures all through. And so if you're sitting here tonight and you're going, you know, I just don't know how the Lord can continue to use me because I've done X. Well, the um, message of Aaron in Leviticus 9 is that God uses fallen and broken people to do his will, and to do his business. And so what had to happen? Well, Aaron had to make recovery, and he had to uh, make confession, and sin offering had to be offered and whatnot. The relationship with God had to be restored, but when it was restored, he was ready to be used by God, and he continued to serve as Israel's high priest, Israel's first high priest. So that ought to be a message of hope to each of us. And then in uh, um, verses 22 through 24, those were pretty amazing, weren't they? If you look at it, let's just read those right quick. So Aaron has uh, uh, offered these uh, uh, sacrifices. Then he and Moses have, um, um, they're getting ready to go into the uh, tent of meeting. It says in verse 22, Then Aaron lifted up his hands towards the people and blessed them, And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. And then what happens? The glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. You know, this was a people who had seen God show up in pretty amazing ways in the midst of the plagues. The parting of the Red Sea, the uh, pillar of Uh, cloud uh, by day and the pillar of fire by night. They had seen God show up, but they hadn't seen him show up for a while. And here the glory of the Lord appears to all the people. And then how about verse 24? And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. I don't know about y'all, gang, but I have not had an encounter with the glory of God in that sort of way. But today, we serve as believers in Christ that same God. And that same God is able today to reveal his glory through you by you being fully obedient to him. He can use someone like me. He can use someone like you. And so the opportunity for us to live transformed lives in front of people 
uh, that are watching us in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces, uh, even in our own families. Um, that is an awesome privilege and an awesome responsibility that we are called to be holy people living out holy lives by being obedient to what he commands us to do. And we had the opportunity to see that glory demonstrated not probably in the same way as happened uh, here in Leviticus 9, but in a way in which people will go, you know, hey, what's different about Trip Parker? I'm going to pick on Trip since he's sitting here, but I've had a guy come tell me that, hey, Trip Parker's different, and, you know, I don't know quite how to figure that out, but there's something about him that's different. And I said, hey, it's because he lives in a manner that is obedient to his relationship with Christ. And so we still have the opportunity today to have God display his glory through the transformed lives that we live by being obedient to his son. That's pretty amazing. All right, key phrase in uh, um, chapter 9, before the Lord, it appears in there. And remember, key to understanding the book, uh, that Schultz quote I gave you was the presence of the Lord. They're living in the presence of the Lord. Um, the result, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people and fire consumes the offering. That is pretty amazing. And you know, gang, um, in chapter 10, it shows us um, right after great spiritual victory, after a great spiritual event, what can happen? Things can go mightily wrong. And we see that happen in chapter 10. If you'll take a look at chapter 10, it begins, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Now, you go from the great victory, the great uh, uh, spiritual momentum that started in chapter 9 with um, this fire coming out and consuming the burnt offering, and then before they can almost take another breath, um, Aaron's sons go do something they shouldn't have done. We don't really know uh, what this unauthorized fire was or what they did. Uh, scholars speculate, if you'll look down a couple of verses, in um, uh, beginning in verse 8, it says, The Lord spoke to Aaron, God speaking directly to Aaron, saying, Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. Well, scholars say the... Uh, context, the juxtaposition of those two, uh, the event and the instruction from the Lord may well indicate that um, Nadab and Abihu had violated just that principle. We don't really know, but the bottom line for that is that we have to worship in the way that God calls us to worship him. We run his offense, not our own. We do things his way, not our own. And so in um, chapter 10, in verses 1 through 7, you see the death of Nadab and Abihu. Verses 8 through 16, we have instructions from the Lord and Moses. 
And then in chapter 10, you see uh, in verses 17 through 20, you really see Aaron's humility in his response. And so uh, if you look at 16, Moses uh, is upset with uh, Eliezer and Ithamar, the surviving sons of Aaron, because they hadn't done um, as uh, Moses had instructed them to do. And look at, uh, um, beginning in verse 17, why, uh, Moses says, Why have you not eaten the sin offering in the place of the sanctuary, since it is a thing most holy and has been given to you, that you may bear the iniquity of the congregation to make atonement for them before the Lord? Well, you know, if I had just seen what happened to Nadab and Abihu and had been told, hey, go eat this, I think I would have eaten it. Aaron uh, has a response that really shows the humility of his heart. Um, Verse 18 says, um, Behold, its blood was not brought into the inner part of the sanctuary. You certainly ought to have eaten it in the sanctuary as I commanded. That's Moses speaking. And here's Aaron's reply. He says to Moses, Behold, today they have offered their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord, and yet such things as these have happened to me. If I had eaten the sin offering today, would the Lord have approved? And when Moses heard that, he approved. I think what Moses heard was the humility of uh, Aaron's heart that said, Look, you know, I don't know what happened with my boys, but that was terrible. And I just felt like that I should not eat this uh, before the Lord. And Moses yielded to that. I think he appreciated the humility that Aaron uh, showed in his response. And so, gang, you know, the idea that the heart is always the issue, I think, is played out right at the end of this chapter. And it will be the issue for uh, the Israelites throughout the book of uh, um, Leviticus, and it's the issue for us today. What is our heart doing? What is our heart motivation? How are we going to live in a way that honors Christ with the right heart motivation? So let's uh, take a look at uh, Leviticus 8 through 10 and some per, uh, personal application. On this next slide, I've got some uh, references in Hebrews, and let's look at those together. We've still got a uh, few minutes. Let's turn to Hebrews 4, uh, 14 through 16, and we'll answer these together. So who is our high priest today? Well, obviously, uh, Jesus is our great high priest. And uh, Hebrews 4.14 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Um, The book of Hebrews is written to a people who were undergoing persecution by other Jews and who were being tempted to fall away from so great a salvation. And so it was written to encourage them to hang in there and to persevere. Um, The writer says, Let us hold fast our confession, their belief in Christ. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Man, that is a verse I go to a lot. Let us draw near with confidence, with boldness. God gives us the right to come into his presence with boldness to make our petitions known. 
Uh, how about that uh, as something that our Savior has done for us? And so Christ is our high priest today, and he is a worthy high priest. In fact, uh, one of the themes of the book of Hebrews is about the superiority of Christ, and he is a superior high priest. And so what sacrifice did Christ offer? Let's look at uh, Hebrews 9, uh, 24 through 28. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, like the tabernacle, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. And that's one of the things we'll see. The Day of Atonement they did year after year after year because the blood of bulls and goats did not offer us a permanent forgiveness of sins. But we'll see about what Christ's sacrifice offers. Um, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That was the sacrifice that he offered. And just as it has been appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And so why is that uh, um, sacrifice superior? Well, you can read in uh, uh, chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. And so what does this mean for us today? Or um, I skipped one. Uh, does it have to be repeated? Well, uh, verses uh, 10, chapter 10, verses 11 through 14 tell us that it doesn't have to be repeated because it is once and sufficient offered for our sins. And so what does this mean for us today? Let's look at Hebrews, 19, uh, Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened uh, for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Can't you just see the... Um, um, implements of the tabernacle uh, being alluded to in um, those verses. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So what are we to do today? Well, we're to continue meeting, to study his word, to do what y'all are doing tonight. You being here is an encouragement to me. And I hope this teaching has been an encouragement to you to live holy lives in the presence of our holy God that we have the privilege to do as believers in Christ. That's what we're called to do. And that's what the book of Leviticus is all about. So the theme, holiness. We are to be holy because he is holy. Be holy as I am holy, the Lord says. We still got a couple of minutes. Any questions as we close? Sean?
Um, distinguish, am I going to distinguish between holiness and righteousness? Well, that's a great question. Um, we could spend the next three weeks talking just about those two terms. So yes, there is some difference, but obviously there is a huge overlap between righteousness and holiness, okay? Um, God's righteous standard is uh, a picture of uh, what we must conform to. Uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, hey, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, uh, the scribes and Pharisees, you can't enter heaven. Well, most of the folks hearing that would have gone, hey, those are the guys who are living holy lives, so how can I do that? Well, that's the message. You can't do it on your own, but by living in accordance with how Christ calls you to live, you can live holy and righteous lives. We can do it through the filling and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. So there is difference. Uh, but they obviously are words that are closely related in describing foundational attributes of our God. Great question. Anyone else? Do we feel like we have a good introduction to the book of Leviticus? Are you going to come back next week? All right. Now, you know, um, whether you come back next week or not, don't miss week three, okay? My buddy Andrew Sumney is going to be up here talking about um, what it's like to live Levitically, what it's like to live in Israel, and it will be a great way to really uh, put some color commentary, if you will, on the sacrifices, on the uh, uh, rules and regulations, and ultimately on the feasts uh, that he's actually participated in in Israel. Okay? So let me close this in a word of prayer. And before I do, um, When we dismiss, we've got uh, some summer treats for you downstairs, so go and enjoy. And uh, uh, my buddy Scott Michael will be down there, and uh, Blake will be down there, and I'll be down there. We'd love to visit with you and answer any questions that you might have from tonight. And we'd also encourage you, uh, if you are not currently in community here at Watermark, we would love for you to take that opportunity to talk to any of us about what it's like to live in biblical community, and how we can help you find people to link arms with uh, to live in community. Thanks for being here, gang. It's been fun. Let me pray for us. Lord, we started by saying your will, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. And so, Father, help us uh, live that out. May those not just be words, but may... Uh, that way of living characterize this people. And so may we follow your son uh, by faith as we've received him. May May we go live in him, and may we walk in a manner worthy of our calling, living holy lives to please you, our holy God. Father, we're grateful for the sacrifice that you uh, have made for us in sending your son to die for us. And we uh, uh, appreciate uh, the filling of your spirit that we might walk in a manner uh, pleasing to a holy God. So thanks for this time. Thanks for each one of these folks. And may we uh, uh, celebrate uh, the opportunity to uh, be called children of a holy God. In Christ's name, amen.